Well, today uh, we're in part two of our series, Where We Stand, Timeless Answers to Timely Issues. And if you weren't here last week, I really think you should take some time this week and go back and watch part one online because we talked about a lot of important things and I don't want you to miss it because it really is important uh, to the overall discussion of this series. Uh, Today, uh, we're gonna continue to talk about something really important. We're gonna talk about truth uh, because sometimes if we're honest, truth can be hard to handle. Uh, whether you're on the giving end of truth or whether you're on the receiving end of truth. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to speak the truth. Um, Sometimes it's hard to hear the truth. And sometimes it's hard to accept the truth. Uh, There are times in life uh, when what's true, we don't want to be true. And what's not true, we wish that it actually was true. Uh, and, And that adds a level of complexity to truth and knowing how to handle it. Like I said, truth could be hard to handle. And then when you think about truth as just a concept, I think we all understand, you know, what someone means when they say the word truth. Uh, It's a simple concept, uh, but yet sometimes we don't think uh, thoroughly through it. And I hope that we're going to do a little bit of that today. But even though the truth may be a simple concept, uh, the truth doesn't make life any less difficult or any less complicated. Matter of fact, when it comes to truth, uh, there is an element both of simplicity and complexity. Uh, The simplicity of truth is information. You know, there's a set of information. It's true. You know, it's factual. So there's this neutral information. So the simplicity of truth is just information, but the complexity of truth is application. Um, What we actually do with the truth, how we handle the truth, when we speak the truth, how we speak the truth, uh, how do we receive truth when it's difficult to hear or difficult to accept. That's the complexity of truth. It's the application of truth and all the implications that flow out of those applications. Because like I said, even though the truth can be clear and it can be simple and it can be straightforward, it doesn't make life, it doesn't make my life, it doesn't make your life, it doesn't make anyone's life any less complicated or difficult. So as we think about truth today, I just want us to warm up and warm up our minds and warm up our hearts. And I want us to be curious for just a moment and questions that we've probably asked before, or if we haven't, uh, we should. And maybe it's been a long time since we thought about some of these questions, but these are really important questions as it relates uh, to what we're talking about today. And the first question is this, what is truth? What is truth? Um, Is truth absolute or is it relative? Is it objective or is it subjective? Is it universal or individual? Is it fixed Uh, eternal or evolving? Is true something that we agree on by consensus and you agree with it and I agree with it and all of a sudden we adopt it as true? Or is true something that independently exists outside of ourselves? What is truth? And all of us, all of us, especially in our 21st century culture, all of us should spend a little time thinking about, you know, what is truth? The second question is this, where does truth come from? Uh, Is it a social construct? Is it a political construction, uh, a religious construct? You know, where does truth come from? Does it come from within us and because I have a feeling and because I have a desire and because I have a thought or because I have an experience? You know, that truth comes from within me. You know, I adopt it as truth. Uh, Where does truth come from? Is it derived just from the physical world uh, that we exist uh, in within space and time? Or is there a metaphysical or transcendent 
transcendent truth that comes to us, that acts upon us, or, you know, from outside of time and space. You know, where does truth come from? Because it's a really important question to think about. And, and that's a question I don't think a lot of us have actually spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, we know what truth is to some degree, but where does truth come from? You know, that, that's not something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, but it's really, really important. And, and you'll understand a bit more why it's so important in just a few minutes. And then the third question is this, who gets to decide what the truth is and what the truth isn't? Uh, do we get a say? Do I get a say? Do you get a say? Does the government get a say on what's true for its citizens and, and what isn't true for its citizens? Uh, do individual religions get to decide what's true? And so one, one religion over here, you know, it has its set of truth and another religion over here has its set of truth and, and that truth is supposed to work, you know, for everybody within those, you know, religious cultures and for everybody else, we're just supposed to leave each other along, uh, alone. You know, does individual religions get to decide what's true and what isn't? You know, do we as individuals uh, get to decide what, what is true and what's not true? Um, do I get to decide that for myself and do other people get the same choice for themselves? And if that's the case, you know, we should just think about what that actually means. It means that you can have your truth and I can have my truth and, and everybody else can have their own version of the truth. And and all of those versions of the truth could be in conflict with each other at any given time. And we all know that the very nature of truth seems to suggest that two opposites can't be true at the same time. So if I have a truth truth that's opposite to your truth, uh, there's gonna be conflict, but, but that can't even be true. How can two opposites be true at the same time? And that brings us to the 21st century world where, where we're living and the direction in which we're heading because a world without moral absolutes is a world where everybody gets to live by their own rules because there is no such thing as an absolute standard of right and wrong because everybody gets to set their own standard of morality and behavior. And, and if that were the case, which you know I don't believe that it is and many of you don't believe that it is, but if that were the case, why would there ever be a reason to argue about anything? Because in a world where absolute right and absolute wrong doesn't exist, then there's no point to argue that your point of view is right and somebody else's point of view is wrong. There's no point in arguing in a world without absolute right and wrong, without absolute moral standards. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. Now, as Christians, we believe that there is a moral standard, a moral absolute. Uh, and we also understand that a moral absolute requires a standard of truth for that moral absolute to appeal to or anchor to. And that's why any discussion about truth, it's why it's so very important. And that's why we're gonna spend an entire message about this because uh, next week we're gonna talk about gender. And the week after that, we're gonna talk about the sanctity of life and how it intersects with you know, things like wokeism and uh, racism and so many of the issues that our culture's talking about. But we need this under you know, our feet as a foundation if we're gonna talk about what we're gonna talk about in the next couple of weeks. So truth as, as this really important you know, concept, this important reality, um, it's so important, it, it helps explain why philosophers and theologians and scientists continue to investigate, search for, and debate truth and why they have been doing so for centuries. They've been talking about what truth is and what it isn't, where does it come from, who gets to decide what truth is and what truth isn't, and then what does all of that mean? Now, we're gonna pick up in the same text uh, that we dealt with last week. Um, we're gonna be in the Gospel of John chapter one, and John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 
He was a fisherman from Galilee who became a follower of Jesus. He's not a scholar. He's not a philosopher. He's not a theologian. He's, he's not a scientist yet. When he writes about Jesus, he, he writes about Jesus in a simple yet profound way. And this is what he says. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And then listen to his words, full of grace and truth. So when John decided to describe Jesus, he used two words. He said he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Uh, John was saying that Jesus is the physical incarnation of God. And he was also the physical incarnation of grace and truth within time and space. And when John describes Jesus as grace and truth, he wants us to understand that these are separate. Uh, these are different but yet they're inseparable. They are a collective pair. Where one goes, the other also must go. Uh, this is John's way of saying that Jesus lived with unconditional grace and he lived with uncompromised truth. That Jesus, he lived his life with a compassion that was anchored to grace. And that Jesus lived his life with conviction that was anchored to truth. So as followers of Jesus here at the Creek Church and, and really for Jesus followers everywhere, uh, we understand that Jesus, he's the person that we're supposed to take our cues from. He's our pattern. He's our example of how we're to live, how we're to interact, and how we are to speak in this world with each other and to the culture at large. And John says, when it comes to Jesus, he was all grace, he was all truth, all the time. And that's how you and I are supposed to be as followers of Jesus. That's how we're supposed to be as a church. All grace, all truth, all the time. But here's the problem. A lot of us and a lot of churches, we end up stumbling into unbalanced grace and unbalanced truth. Uh, we often want one or the other to win out, depending on the situation and depending on the issue. Sometimes we want it to be a time for truth. Sometimes we want it to be a time for grace. But John said he was all grace, all truth, all the time, and we are supposed to be as well. Unbalanced grace, don't miss this. And this is probably worth, worth writing down, certainly worth remembering. Unbalanced grace leads to a liberalism of compassion that just condones everyone. You just condone everybody's decision. You condone everybody's behavior. You know, you do you, I'll do me, and let's just not try to, you know, worry about each other or anything like that. Unbalanced grace leads to a liberalism of compassion that condones everyone. But don't miss this. Unbalanced truth leads to a fundamentalism of conviction that just ends up condemning everyone. And oftentimes just condemning everyone who just sins differently than what I do or what you do. So unbalanced grace just condones everyone. Unbalanced truth just condemns everyone. And neither one is like Jesus. Jesus was all grace, all truth, all the time. And we're going to follow Jesus and follow his example and reflect his way in this world. It's going to require grace and truth. And when we fail to have either... We fail to be like Jesus. Uh, John continues on in this text. He says, out of his fullness, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And, and I love this. If we just stop and think about this for a moment, here, here's what John was saying. Did Jesus have a standard of truth? John would say yes. Did he have a standard of truth that he called me and the other disciples to live up to and to strive for? John would say yes. 
But John would also say, did we often fall short of that standard of truth that Jesus called us to live up to and to strive for? John would say, yes, we did. And if we ask John, John, how did Jesus respond to you and the other disciples and to other people? when you fell short of the standard of truth that he called you to live up to and to strive for. How did Jesus respond? And John would say, well, out of his fullness, we have received grace on top of grace on top of grace. His grace knew no bounds, it knew no limits, it never ran out of patience, it never gave up on us. That was the type of grace that Jesus showed us. I love this, grace on top of grace. When we fell short of the standard of truth, we discovered his grace. In other words, the last time that we fell short of his standard of truth, the last time that we fell short never got in the way of the next time that we needed grace because it was grace on top of grace on top of grace. And I think that all of us who've been following Jesus for any time at all, we could say the same thing, that every time, every time that we have fallen short, of Jesus's standard of truth that he has called us to live up to and that he has called us to strive for. Every time we have fell short of that standard of truth that he's called us to, that he's given us an example of, when we fall short, it's been grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. John goes on. He says, for the law, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, another way of thinking about the law of God, you know, those 613 laws in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the law was God's standard. Uh, Paul in the New Testament calls it our teacher or our schoolmaster. You say, well, what does the law teach us? The law teaches us that we can't keep the law. The law teaches us that we fall short of God's glory, that we always you know, fall short of God's standard of truth. We cannot perfectly adhere to God's standard of truth. We can't perfectly obey God's standard of truth. So we fall short of God's standard. But yet, John, he's making the same point that he just got through talking about when he said grace on top of grace. He said when Jesus showed up into the world, he didn't water down the standard. He, he didn't lower the standard of God. He didn't compromise the truth. He, he didn't abolish the law. But what he did, he offered grace for when we fall short of the standard of truth. Now, we should all just think about this for a moment because this is a big deal. God's law, I can remember growing up in church always thinking that the scriptures were just this big book of just thou shalt not, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that, just a big book just full of things that we are not supposed to do, things that we shouldn't do. But I want you to think about, those of you who are moms and dads and those of you who are grandparents and grandmothers, God's law is what a loving parent does for the son or the daughter that they love. A loving parent always establishes laws or rules uh, for their kids. You know, like don't play in the road. That's a good rule. That's a good law to have when it comes to your children. Don't run with scissors in your hands. Uh, don't play on the stairs. Don't, don't put an electric appliance, you know, on the side of the bathtub while you're taking a bath or, you know, whatever it might be. A good parent's laws a good father, a good mother, the laws are the rules that they place in their child's life. It's birthed out of love. That's why you do it. Hey, don't play in the road because I know you could get hurt and I don't want you to get hurt because I love you. Don't run with scissors in your hands because I don't want to see you get impaled. God forbid. You know, you, you do that because you love your kid. Don't play on the stairs because you could fall down and you could be seriously injured. And you, you place these laws because you love your kid. 
But here's the thing to think about, and every mom and every, every dad, every good mom and every good dad knows this. When your kids break your laws, when your kids break the laws that you put in place because you love your kid, it doesn't break your love for them because the laws were given to begin with because you loved your kid. And when your kid breaks your law, it doesn't cause you to stop loving your kid because those laws were there to protect. Those laws were there to bring life and not take away life. They were there to bring freedom, not restriction. So John says, the law came through Moses, and this law was not to restrict us. It wasn't to rob us of life. It was to protect our life. It was God's values and God's vision for our life, and he's given us this standard of truth that he calls us to live up to, this standard of truth that he calls us to strive for. But yet, when we fall short of God's standard and we break those laws, it doesn't ever break God's love for us because those laws were put in place to begin with because he loves us. When we fall short of the standard, there's grace on top of grace on top of grace. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then John, he wraps up this little segment and he says, no one, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. In other words, Jesus revealed to us, John would say, what God was like. And we realize by watching Jesus that God is a God of grace and a God of truth. And that means if we're going to follow Jesus, we are to be a people of both grace and truth. Now, I told you a few moments ago that our focus was going to be on truth today, and it is. But it is impossible to talk just about truth without, without also talking about grace because Jesus was all truth, all grace, all the time. Jesus had uncompromised conviction. Jesus was a man of truth. Uh, matter of fact, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. Uh, Jesus didn't come to lower the standard. If anything, he raised it. Uh, one time Jesus said, you've heard uh, in the old law, uh, the law of Moses, hey, you should not murder another person. But I'm going to tell you that if you hate someone in your heart, you are already guilty of murder. That's what Jesus said. I mean, that's, that's not lowering the standard. That's raising the standard. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's like, what? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Are those the words of a man soft on truth? Is that the words of a man who compromises the truth? Certainly not. Jesus called sinners sinners. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, that's pretty in your face. He called sinners sinners. <laughs> that's truth. And then he died for sinners. That's grace. That's all grace, all truth, all the time. Now, when it comes to truth, I want you to hear what Jesus understood about the truth as it related to himself. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14. Here's a verse you've heard before, but, but listen in the context of what we're talking about. Jesus answered and said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, Jesus, he didn't claim to have the truth, and he just didn't claim to teach the truth. Jesus claimed that he himself was the truth. And this was a claim to divinity because Jewish people understood that truth and God, that God was the embodiment of truth, that all truth came from the person of God. And when Jesus says, I am the truth, this was a claim to be divine. This was a claim to be God. And again, he's echoing the words of John, that he was God in the flesh. He was the embodiment of truth. And in this moment, Jesus, he stands in a position where he stands against all lies. He places himself as the contrast 
to all lies because he is the embodiment of all that is true. He offers himself as the measuring stick, as the reference point, as the anchor for all truth claims. And this is huge, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Jesus just didn't teach truth. Jesus just didn't claim to have the truth. He said that he was the truth. He is the measuring stick. He is the reference point and the anchor for all truth claims. And so this should cause us then to ask the question, well, what did Jesus teach about truth? Well, Jesus taught some really important things about the truth. I wanna give you three of them. The first one is this, and, and you should probably write these down, write these down, put it in your phone. Or, Jesus taught that the truth convicts us. In John chapter 14, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. That when the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, when it dwells within us as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of God, that the truth, the spirit of truth, it will convict us of sin in our life. It will let us know when we're heading in the wrong direction. It will let us know when we're stepping out of bounds. It lets us know when our life doesn't integrate with the vision and the values that God has established our lives to embrace. So it doesn't matter whether we're heading in a direction that we want to be true, that we might even believe to be true. If the Spirit of God lives within us, the Spirit of God will convict us. The Spirit of God will give us a gut check. The Spirit of God will tap on our shoulder and say, hey, you're heading in the wrong direction. You want it to be the right direction, but you're heading in the wrong direction. You're wanting this to be right, but, but you know in your heart of hearts, this is wrong. And he says, so the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, truth convicts us, and we all need that. We need the truth to convict us, the spirit of truth to show us when we're heading in the wrong direction, when we're embracing you know, what's wrong as something that may be right. In John 3, 21, Jesus said that the truth is light, that it shows us, it gives us enlightenment. It shows us where we're out of alignment. It, show, it shows us what's wrong. It, it shows us what's right. It shows us how to make things right. It shows us how to stay right. Uh, Jesus, he calls us to come out of darkness because he says that people love darkness because their deeds are evil. And when we step into the light, we can see what's been out of alignment. We can see what's right and what's wrong and we can see how to get right and how to stay right. The truth is like light that shines into dark places to bring enlightenment, to bring knowledge, to show the path that we're supposed to be on. And then in John eight, Jesus taught that the truth sets us free, that it sets us free from the lies that sometimes we hold on to that hold us back from God's best. You know, sometimes we believe the lie that my way is better than God's way. You know, God's way is antiquated. My way, you know, it, it's, it's culturally uh, current. It's relevant. You know, I, I, think, I, think that, I think that my way is just better than God's way. And it's a lie that sometimes we believe. Uh, sometimes, you know, people believe the lie that God doesn't love them or God can't love them or that they're irredeemable, you know, or that, you know, what I choose to do, it doesn't matter. You know, it's my life, it's my business. As long as anybody, nobody gets hurt, then, you know, then it, it's no big deal. Uh, and the truth comes along and it sets us free from those lies that as long as we don't hurt ourselves and as long as we don't hurt others, you know, it's no big deal. The truth comes along and helps us identify the lie. You see, when we identify the lie, it frees us from the sway and the power of sin. That's the reason, you know, Paul would be able to use such words in Romans 6 that, you know, that sin is no longer my master. Uh, because when it comes to sin, 
behind every sin, there is a lie. And Jesus said, the truth comes along and exposes the lie. And when we see the lie that's behind the sin, we're set free from the power of that sin. Uh, Jesus, he understood that the truth was God's vision for our lives. It's the way that we were originally designed to live. Uh, God's truth, God's standard, God's visions, and you know, God's vision and God's value for our life, it, it really shows us what it means to be fully human because that's what Jesus demonstrated for all of us, what it looks like to live fully human in this world. And, and the truth comes along and wherever we've bought into a lie that's led us down the pathway of sin, that's brought us into the captivity of sin because there is a lie behind every sin. The truth comes along and has the power to set us free from that lie and therefore from that sin. So this is what Jesus taught about the truth. Uh, this is what Jesus believed about the truth when it came to himself, that he was the embodiment of it. And when Jesus taught about the truth, he was teaching about himself. And when he taught about himself, he was teaching about the truth because he understood that he was the embodiment of truth, that the truth can set us free, that the truth brings light, and that the truth can convict us when we're heading in the wrong direction, when we're stepping outside the bounds of what God desires for our lives. Now, let's circle back for just a moment where we began today with the question then, what is truth? In light of what Jesus taught and in light of what Jesus said about truth, you know, what is truth? Well, we could say that, you know, truth is just simply the way things are, and that's true. It's that which corresponds to reality, and that's true. Matter of fact, Aristotle, you know, the great philosopher, when he contemplated truth, he said to, to speak truth is to speak what is and what is not. Truth is our mind that conforms to the reality that is actually existing around us. Uh, that's truth in, in a large, you know, a large framework of thinking. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, later on in his ministry, uh, he was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, and you might remember that Pilate asked Jesus the question, what is truth? What is truth? A few moments later, Pilate looked at the crowd and referencing Jesus, he said, I find no fault in this man. In other words, Pilate in that moment recognized the reality of what existed in front of him. He recognized the truth that there's no fault in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. That was the reality of the moment. That was the way that things were. So that is truth. Now, as Christians, we, we believe some things about the nature of truth. And, and these are some things that I just personally don't believe that are up for, up for debate. Uh, these are the logical outcome. Uh, concerning, you know, what we believe about God and what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the scripture, the logical outcome of those beliefs uh, steer us in the direction of believing certain things about the nature of truth, um, such as truth is absolute, not relative. There's a lot of people in our world that want to believe and want to behave as though that truth is, is relative, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, but that, that just absolutely can't be true. Anybody who ever looks at you and says, there's no such thing as absolute truth, just look at them and say, are you absolutely certain of that? Because that's, a true, that, that's an absolute truth claim in and of itself. Uh, as Christians, we believe, because of what we believe about God and what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the scripture, that truth isn't relative to a person, place, culture, or circumstance. Truth doesn't concern itself with who you are, the place that you live, the culture you live in, or the circumstances of your life. Truth, by its very nature, is true for all people at all times 
in all places. Truth is truth for all people at all times in all places, for me, for you, for the world. That's what we believe about truth because of what we believe about God and what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the scriptures. We believe that truth is objective, not subjective. Uh, If something is true, it's true despite my beliefs to the contrary or my interpretations to the contrary, my explanations to the contrary, my opinions, my perspective, my experience, my desires. If something is true, it's true despite all of those things. It's true despite my sense of fair or unfair or what I I see as just or unjust. It's true whether or not I agree with it or not, whether I want it to be true or not, whether it's legal or not. Truth is objective, not subjective. Truth is universal not individual. Uh, The very nature of truth says, hey, there can be no such thing as my truth and your truth and their truth. Truth doesn't belong to an individual people, an individual culture, or individual groups, or individual political parties, or individual religions. Truth, true truth. Truth is true everywhere for everyone. It's universal, not individual. And then lastly, Truth is eternal, not evolving. Our thoughts, our opinions, our perspectives about truth may evolve as a culture or as an individual, but truth itself doesn't evolve just because our thinking may evolve or a culture's values may change. Truth isn't adaptive. It doesn't change. It's not contingent on consensus or the position of the majorities. Cultures will change, people will change, views will change. Truth doesn't change. Truth is eternal. It's not evolving. It's true for all people in all places in every single generation. And if that's true, and I believe that it is, it means truth can't evolve. What was once true can't be something different today as we think about moral absolutes. Moral absolutes do not reinvent themselves based on a shifting value system of culture or a nation or a community of people or an individual. Now, those things I believe to be true about truth. It's absolute, it's not relative, it's objective, not subjective, it's universal, it's not individual, and ultimately it's eternal, not evolving. And I believe those things to be true because truth is inextricably connected to God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Just stop for a moment and just think about this. In a world where God doesn't exist, there really can't be any such thing as moral absolutes. There just, there just can't be. Morality in a world where God doesn't exist, it's without an anchor because there's no outside transcendent standard to anchor it to. It means that in a world without God, no one has any moral high ground to claim anything is right or wrong because everything is relative and subjective and individual to where you may live and who you are and a host of other things. In a world where God doesn't exist, ideas on morality evolve. Uh, Of course it would, because people evolve in their thinking and in their sense of how they would like to define right and wrong, good and evil. Uh, In a world without God, morality is just a a matter of mere consensus. A group of people agrees upon, hey, we believe this is right, we believe this is wrong, we believe this is good, this is evil. But that won't stand for long because sooner or later there'll be a different consensus of people who will disagree with that consensus. Um, 
In a world without God, no one can really argue about who's right or who's wrong. Uh, In a world without God, no one gets to open up the history books and point to a certain segment or era in history and say, you know what? This was unjust or this was immoral or this was evil because it's all in the eye of the beholder. Matter of fact, uh, Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in the world uh, and has been for the past few years, he kind of gives us insight to the worldview of someone who believes that we live in a world and a universe without God. And I I want you just to understand that if you choose to believe in a world without God, that there's there's no logical avoiding also believing in a world where there's no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong. This is what he says. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes for me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom. Listen, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In a world without God, there is nothing to appeal to in order to make a case for an absolute moral standard or an absolute right, an absolute wrong, an absolute definition to good or evil. Without God, without the existence of God, no one has the right to claim moral authority, to point out an injustice or a wrong or an offense. Uh, And again, like I said earlier, there's no sense to argue about right and wrong in a world where there can be no absolute definition to right or wrong because it would just constantly be changing. Only God, only the existence of God gives us a rational, moral, logical framework for believing that there is an absolute moral standard, that there is an absolute standard of truth, that there is an absolute sense of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil. There has to be a transcendent standard that is extra cosmic, supernatural, outside of time and space, or we're just making it up as we go along. We believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we believe that there is an absolute right and wrong, an absolute standard of truth, an absolute sense of what is good and what is evil. Because we believe that God has revealed himself, he himself as the truth. He has revealed himself, the truth to us through nature, through the scriptures, and ultimately through Jesus. And when it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to you know, what we believe is the written record of God's revelation to us, we have to do the hard work. And we have to work through all the historical context, all the cultural nuances, in order to arrive at the truth that God is actually communicating to us through his word. We have to do the hard work, the difficult work, and just not knowing what God said but understanding what God meant by what God said. Now, I just want to say this. You know this, but you, you need to be reminded of it. Just because a Christian says something's true, it doesn't make it, tr- doesn't make it true. 
And just because a Christian says something's not true doesn't make it not true. We believe that if God says it's true, God has revealed himself in nature, God has revealed himself through the scripture, God has revealed himself through Jesus. And if God says it's true, it's true. If God says it's a lie, it's a lie. If God says it's good, it's good. If God says it's evil, it's evil. Now we have to do what Paul told Timothy. We have to take the scriptures and we have to rightly divide the word of truth in order to surface the truth that God is pointing us to and that God wants us to understand. It's just not a matter of understanding what God said in the book. It's understanding what God meant by what he said in the book. If we misread the book, misinterpret the book, read our own presuppositions or our cultural context into the book, we will unintentionally misrepresent the truth. And when we misrepresent or misunderstand the truth, we almost always mistreat people. We almost always end up hurting, not helping. So we gotta do the hard work as people of the book, people who believe that the scriptures are the word of God. I believe it. Genesis to the old preacher, as he would say it, I believe it from Genesis all the way through the maps. I believe that the scriptures are the written revelation of God. We take our cues from the word. And when people talk about the authority of scripture, the authority of scripture is just not what God said. The true sense of the authority of scripture is understanding and being correct about what God meant by what he said. That's where the authority of truth comes from, not in just what God said. Lots of people can quote what God said, but what he meant by what he said, that's the authority of the truth. That's the authority of scripture. And if we are wrong about the truth, we end up hurting and not helping. So we gotta get to the truth. And we gotta remember along the way, it keeps us humble. We gotta remember that opinions are relative. Mine, yours, everybody's. Opinions are relative. Interpretations are fallible. Yours, mine's, everybody. Interpretation are fallible. But the truth is neither relative or fallible. So as we get ready to wrap this up, uh, let, me just, let me just camp out here for just a moment. That's a lot of groundwork with the truth. And as I said in the very beginning, truth, it can be hard to handle. It can be hard to handle. And I, I wanna just say a word to all of us who find ourselves on the receiving end of truth. As the Holy Spirit you know, speaks to us within our hearts and within our minds, as it tries to convict, as it tries to bring light, as it tries to expose the lie. You know, how do we respond to the truth when the truth comes to us? Well, we're supposed to recognize it as the truth, and when we recognize, oh, this is the truth, then we're under responsibility to accept it as the truth, and when we accept it as the truth, we surrender to the truth. We surrender ourselves to the truth, and we do our best to live out the truth and obey the truth. That's, that's how we handle the truth when we're on the receiving end of truth. Whether it's the Holy Spirit, whether it's a friend, whether it's the sermon, whether it's waking up early and reading the scriptures, you know, what am I supposed to do when the truth comes to me? I'm supposed to recognize it, I'm supposed to accept it, I'm supposed to surrender to it, I'm supposed to live it out. Otherwise, the scripture says we are rebelling against the truth. We are falling short of the truth. Now that's how we receive the truth. But like I said, the truth can be hard to handle. How do we speak the truth? How do we give the truth? With each other, with the culture? And let me give you just a quick concluding thought. I think that we are called in the New Testament, matter of fact, I know we are, in the clearest of terms. We are supposed to speak the truth in love. 
Ephesians 4.15, that when we speak the truth in love, it becomes the catalyst for change. Uh, Speaking the truth in love means that I am motivated by the need of the person that I'm speaking to more than my own personal opinions and my own personal passions. Speaking the truth in love is being motivated by what's best for the person who needs the truth. It's not about me in that moment. You know, if I hear a person say, well, I just gotta say something or I gotta get this off my chest or I gotta get this off my mind. I always think to myself, this sounds a whole lot about you and less about everybody else that you're speaking to. The truth is not about making ourselves feel better. It's about making the person or the people that we're speaking to better. It's about getting them better and stronger. It's about moving them in the direction of what is true and is what, what is life-giving. It's about exposing the lie that they may be holding on to that may be holding them back. It's not about my conscience in that moment. It's not about my personality or how passionate I am about this issue or that issue. It's about them. It's about their life. It's about loving them. It's about caring for them. It's about seeing them grow. It's about seeing them take a step in the right direction. It's about letting the truth do what only the truth can do in that person's life, which is to set them free. So I'm to speak the truth in love, a love that's willing to sacrifice myself for them, a, a love that says, you first, not me, a love that seeks to not only care about what needs to be said, but how it needs to be said and when it needs to be said and the countenance on my face when I say it and the motivation of my heart that has brought me to the place where I need to say something or want to say something and I've got to check my motives to make sure this is not about me, that it's really about them. We're supposed to speak the truth in love in order to build up and not tear down. That's Ephesians 4.29. Paul says, hey, find a fitting occasion to speak the truth, but make sure it's a moment that gives grace. He says, speak words that build up, that meets the occasion that you find yourself in, and make sure that your words gives grace to the people who hear it. In other words, not every occasion may be the occasion to speak up. Uh, It it may not be the right time. It may not be the right place. You may not even be the right person. You may want to speak. You you may feel a burning desire to speak. But Paul says, hey, don't let any corrupting talk. Don't let any talk come out of your mouth that's going to tear somebody down. You wait for the right occasion and you speak words that build up, motivated by love that gives grace to the person. That it's grace on top of grace on top of grace. Someone has fallen short of the standard of truth. But when they fall short of the standard of truth, it's going to be grace on top of grace on top of grace on top of grace. And then lastly, speak the truth in love in order to restore rather than merely correct. Now, I was going to tell you the story of the Samaritan woman, and I wanted to tell you the story of the woman who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears in the house of Simon the Pharisee, but I think my favorite story is the story of Peter. And you know the story of Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And it was at a moment when Jesus needed his friends the most, but Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And the third time that Jesus, you know, the third time that Peter denied Jesus, it says that somehow they exchanged a glance. Somehow they were within enough proximity to each other that when Peter said the last time and actually cursed and said, I don't know the man, I don't know him, I don't know who he is, 
that they exchanged a look. And even in that nonverbal look, Jesus somehow communicated truth that broke Peter's heart, that exposed what had just happened. And it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. And then Jesus was crucified and Jesus was buried. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And after the resurrection, Jesus asked some of the other disciples, where's Peter at? <laughs> and he went looking for Peter because he wanted to confront Peter. He wanted to have a conversation with Peter. Now, I want you to not ever forget this because th this, has been, this has been so life-giving to me to think about this week. When Jesus decided to confront Peter and to have a conversation with Peter, he did it in the most delicate, winsome, gracious, truth-telling, restoring, building up, grace-giving way that we could ever hope that anybody would speak to us. When Jesus got face-to-face -face with Peter, he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus, in the most gracious, unconditional grace, uncompromised truth, Jesus puts his finger on that which had broke Peter's heart, Peter's greatest failure, Peter's worst moment. And in the most gracious, winsome, delicate way, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because he's speaking truth to Peter. He's saying something without having to say it. If, if, if we were Jesus, we would have came up to Peter and we would have said, do you know what you did? Let me tell you what you did. And then we would just rehash it all over again and we would tear down and we would restrict grace. And we would almost seem a bit condemnatory. And then at the end, we would try to make ourselves feel better and them feel, you know, themselves feel better about themselves by saying, yeah, but I still love you. He put his finger on Peter's sin in the most delicate, winsome, gracious way possible. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He said something without saying a lot of things that he could have said. He said what he said, not just to correct Peter, but to restore Peter. Jesus could have broke Peter's spirit that day. He, he could have totally benched Peter for the rest of his life. He could have made Peter feel like a loser for the rest of his life. He could have made Peter feel like, I'll never measure up, I'll never measure up, I'll never be good enough, I'll never be good enough, I'll never be good enough. But when Peter fell short of the standard of grace, the standard of truth, Jesus gave Peter grace upon top of grace on top of grace and he restored him. And in just a few days, Peter, would preach the first Christian sermon. See, I think the greatest news of all may be that when we fall short of God's truth, <laughs> the good news is we can still fall into God's grace. When we fall short of God's truth, we fall into God's grace. And that just might be the greatest truth of all. That when you and when I and when they fall short of God's truth, God makes grace available that we can fall into. The truth can be hard to handle. We gotta recognize it, accept it, surrender to it, and live it out. We gotta speak it, but we gotta speak it in love. We speak it to build up, and we speak it to restore one another to God's plans and God's purposes for our lives. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts. Convict us, give us light, set us free from the lies that we hold on to that hold us back. And Father, help us to learn how to speak truth, to what it means to speak it in love, 
Help us to learn how to speak truth that builds up and a truth that seeks to restore, just not correct. Father, we gotta get this right if we're gonna be all grace, all truth, all the time like Jesus. Father, as we talk about some things over the next couple of weeks, I pray that we'll be able to model this. And I pray, Father, that we'll be able to live this example of Jesus out in our daily lives when the moment requires it. In Jesus' name, amen.